there are the carabinieri, the police and everyone else and there are you know, something clearly happened. And then my father comes in and basically opens the door, the rear door of the car and asks me to give the doll that I was playing with, my Barbie doll. And uh, I don't want to give back my doll because, also because I'm very bored. I don't know what I would be doing without that doll. And it doesn't look like this thing is ending anytime soon. But obviously my father is, is non, he has the usual stern, non-negotiable kind of tone. And he basically takes my doll and say, you have plenty of dolls. Uh, you need to give this doll to that child over there and he indicates a child that I remember perfectly and he says well the child just lost her father so we need to make her smile or something like that I must have been six seven eight I'm not quite sure and then eventually I learn overhearing my father talks that there is a feud that someone chopped someone's head off and they are playing with this head as if it was some sort of soccer ball it wasn't until years later that my guest, now an expert on the infamous Calabrian Mafia clans known collectively as Ndrangheta, realised that she'd been present at an event known as Matanza, the slaughtering of Tarianova. The media dubbed this attack, which left four people dead, as Black Friday, and it was retaliation for a murder of a leading Ndrangetisti, Rocco Zagari, killed as he sat in the barbers. My guest had happened upon the beginning of a feud between competing clans, an intergenerational feud over alliances, drugs, violence and extortion. This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Over the next few episodes, we're in discussion with Anna Sergi, Professor of Criminology at the University of Essex, member of the GI Network of Experts and author of the new book, Chasing the Mafia, Andrangheta, Memories and Journeys. Anna's research has taken her around the world, from the heart of the Drangheta in San Luca, Calabria, to Griffith in Australia, and from Montreal in Canada to the cocaine gateway of Gioia Tauro back in Calabria, always ensuring to avoid a Café Pagato along the way. Welcome to the Drangheta, part one, the Madonna of the Mountain. Hanno individuato e sequestrato un altro ingentissimo carico di cocaina purissima nel porto di Giatauro. Cacciatore in italiano literalmente significa i hunters. We were heading to where they'd captured one Indrangheta member who'd been hiding out for two years. They say they're looking for gang members in Germany, Canada and up to five in Australia. Some 500 defendants, 600 lawyers and more than 900 witnesses in total. Italy's largest mafia trial in decades has begun. The seller of an unfinished house in the village of Platti had a concealed door in the wall. The carabinieri demonstrate how part of the wall can roll backwards on rails, exposing the entrance to a bunker. More than two 200 kilos of pure cocaine has been seized in the southern Italian province of Reggio Calabria. The Indragada are not just an Australian problem, they are a global problem. Every year on September the 2nd, a wooden statue of the Madonna of the Mountain is led in procession through the narrow streets of Polsi this tiny sanctuary that sits deep in a valley. Huge mountains tower over from all sides. This is Aspromonte, harsh mountain. Crowds flock to this religious procession as it marks the end of nine days of celebration for the Madonna di Polsi. Many who live in the small villages in the shadow of the mountain make this annual pilgrimage. 
Now, back in the day, you had to make this pilgrimage by foot, and it must have taken an age. Just go on Google Maps and find this place. It really is remote. Anna Sergi, our guest today, was told by her grandmother that it took 12 hours to walk. Of course, these days, there are roads that take you most of the way, but even those are treacherous. Again, head over to Google Maps and follow the road from San Luca to Polsi. Even the Google van gives up halfway along that route. So, why are we talking about a remote religious festival and some mountains? Well, Aspromonte and the surrounding villages, San Luca, Platti, Natile, and so on, these are the birthplaces of the clans that make up what is collectively known as Undrangheta, one of the most powerful organised criminal syndicates in the world. And so, when the Madonna of the Mountain is being paraded through the streets of Polsi, those Ndrangheta clan members are there too, celebrating, just like the rest. It is actually even more sinister than that, because we need to remember that all the Ndranghetisti are also from the area. So obviously they would celebrate the mountain because that's what everyone else does. And that's what they probably want to do, because they are somehow strangely so devoted or they believe they are devoted Christians and devoted Marians in this case. Uh, so they have to celebrate and participate to the rituals that come with the Madonna di Polsi celebration, including the fact that uh, you go and eat for the whole day, you go and walk uh, there for the whole night, and then you participate to the mass and you essentially meet everyone every year there. So it's particularly important for them to be there, not just to shake hands for mafia business, but actually to show their face, which is the most important thing. The religious significance and the religious stake and importance of the Lady of the Mountain is something that the whole region shares. Like any brand, it's important to have a good story, a founding myth. And the Ndrangheta is, well, let me tell it to you and you can make up your own mind. It's the story of three brothers who happened to be medieval knights from Spain and, of course, happened to be brave and just. They were forced to flee after avenging the rape of their sister, eventually landing on the island of Favignana, just off the western coast of Sicily. It was here that they came up with the rules and rights of the honoured society. With the rules in hand, they decided to go their separate ways. One settled in Sicily and founded the Cosa Nostra. The next went to Naples and founded the Camorra, and finally, the last one tried his luck in Calabria, and the Ndrangheta were born. Now, Anna describes the village of Platti as the brain of the Ndrangheta, and San Luca as the heart. But Polsi, deep in those Aspromonte mountains, is sacred. The legend says that the Ndrangheta 12 tables, so the ruling of the Ndrangheta, was somehow created there, which makes the place untouchable. So you can't really have anything bad happen in that area. But at the same time, we still do know that bad things happen in that area, especially during the period of the kidnappings, because it's an area of transit. It's an area, as I said, deep down in the throat of the Aspromonte. It, it makes it easier for people to hide there. So policy, all are, I would rather say around policy, has been where many of the kidnappings or the murders even or the burials uh, did happen in the past. So it's, it's, as always, the imagined idea of religion and the imagined idea of policy that the Ndrangheta claims to have is not the real one. But at the same time, it is a very, very powerful part of the imagery of the Ndrangheta, the fact that the Ndrangheta is female and is protected by a Madonna. 
We could do a whole series on the imagery, the symbols, the use of religion relating to the Undrangheta, but that's not this story. The reason I wanted to share with you this connection to Polzi and the Aspromonte Mountains is because they are at the very heart of our understanding of the Undrangheta, including a dark recent history. As Anna just said, bad things happen in this area. Aspromonte was central in a period known as the kidnapping season. There were kidnappings carried out by other criminal organizations, including Cosa Nostra, even if they were, there were fewer of them, or even more importantly, the ones in Sardinia, which had just stopped before the Ndrangheta started its own season. And they are still particularly difficult to comprehend. So there was some sort of imitation going on and some sort of idea that, you know, this is a lucrative business, so why not? But they, they all share one thing which was very different from the rest of Italy, in a way, where other kidnappings were carried out, which is that everyone who was kidnapped was brought back to the Aspromonte. The Aspromonte protected the kidnapped and the kidnappers in ways which was absolutely sinister on the one hand and peaceful on the other end. And what I mean is that all around the mountain, when the kidnappings were going on, many people could still pretend this wasn't happening because the mountain somehow shields you from hearing things and seeing things. The Undrangheta were in a unique position compared to other kidnapping groups. They had Aspromonte, that perfect remote natural environment to hide something or someone. But also the Undrangheta essentially had colonies in northern Italy, regions like Piemonte or Lombardy or Veneto where they'd spread their criminal tentacles. But to understand how some of the Undrangheta clans jumped headfirst into the kidnapping season, we have to head back to the early 70s which was a period of serious upheaval and violence within the Ndrangheta world. At this time, there was a sort of triumvirate of senior underworld figures. You had Momo Piramali from Gioia Tauro, you had Antoni Macri from Sedeno on the Ionian coast, and finally Miko Tripodi from the city of Reggio Calabria. Now, the last two were actually initiated members of the Cosa Nostra as well as the Ndrangheta, but again, that's a story for another day. At this time, there was also a move to develop the structures within the Undrangheta clans. A new position of Santista was created. Just 33 members could reach this position and enter the secret group called Mama Santissima, or Santa for short. Members of this new group were given the right to join secretive Masonic brotherhoods, which included among its members senior military and law enforcement, a future Prime Minister of Italy and other senior politicians, bankers, prominent businessmen, journalists and others. Fundamentally, being in the Santa gave you access to power. At the same time, in 1970, protests had erupted in Reggio Calabria for reasons we don't need to go into here. But what followed these protests was a promise of more investment into Calabria from central government. This was known as the Colombo Package and it created a scramble among the clans for contracts and subcontracts relating to these government investments. And we'll come back to the Colombo package in a later episode. 
So this influx of government money waiting to be hijacked alongside this exclusive new position of Santista created serious tension between the clans, eventually resulting in what has become known as the First Andrangheta War. And yet, there was a third and final strand to this outbreak of internal warfare, and that was the new major source of income for some of the Andrangheta clans, kidnapping. Not all of the Ndrangheta clans uh, active in the 70s wanted the kidnappings. There was an internal war, actually, one of the main wars of the Ndrangheta because of the kidnapping. So basically the new generations of, the, of some clans wanted uh, to try this out. And the old guard didn't want to because the old guard was you know, trying to probably be a little bit smarter and say, okay, this is not going to end well for us. And we are still, after all, men of honor. So the old guard was killed uh, in the early 70s by the new guard, eventually got their way. And the kidnapping season, you know, how, you know in the way we call them, La Stagione dei Rapimenti, uh, this official name, began precisely at the back of the Aspromonte region in the villages around Platì, Sinopoli, Natile, all the small villages that surround the Aspromonte region on the Ionic side, mostly. So it was in the 70s when, according to historian John Dickey, kidnapping became, and I quote, a nationwide business for Calabrian organised crime. And this continued until the 90s. Such was the concern that wealthier families took out insurance against kidnapping to ensure that they had money to pay if the worst happened. It's estimated that some of the main Undrangheta clans kidnapped around 300 people during this period. And Anna's father reported on it. At the time of the kidnappings, for example, which was the period of the starting at uh, mid-70s all the way up until late 80s, early 90s, being a journalist wasn't obviously the same as it is today. There was no internet, there wasn't even cell phones. So obviously the, the work of a journalist was really to learn by heart the shapes and the infrastructure of the region, the people and the roads or lack of roads. And that is really what my father transmitted to me. He knew the back, uh, bone and back of the region. He knew where places were without, obviously, Google, Google, Google Maps. And he knew what was peculiar of each place. And the fact that he kept us so shielded from the violence he witnessed all the time in the period of the kidnapping is something that I still recriminate uh, against him. But I knew why he did, obviously. But he was, in a way... The, the only reason, the only reason why we grew up, my sister and I, uh, so protected somehow. So we knew what was going on, but at the same time, it took us a while to understand the actual depth of what was going on. But it's almost impossible to shield that violence all the time, no matter how hard you try. So the story, as I remember it and as I write it down, it's faulty in memory and it is about uh, me driving in my car with my father. I remember how I was dressed and I remember was feeling very sleepy. It was night time or sort of getting to night time sunset and we were coming from the Aspromontes going back to where we lived. Obviously, as it always often happened, we got a call. My father got a very old phone at the time. Well, what now is an old phone at the time it was fairly new phone <laughs> for the when he used to work for la repubblica for the newspaper and essentially we were told 
that uh, there had been murder, mass murder, plurimus murder, multiple murders in a nearby town. So we get to this town, which was Taurianova, and as far as I remember, and the, the, the whole story unravels pretty quickly as if it was some sort of a dream. And the some sort of a dream goes that I essentially staying there in the car. My father gets out. There is confusion around. There are the carabinieri, the police and everyone else. And there are, you know, something clearly happened. And then my father comes in and basically opens the door, the rear door of the car and asks me to give uh, the doll that I was playing with, my Barbie doll. And uh, I don't want to give back my doll because also because I'm very bored. I don't know what I would be doing without that doll. And it doesn't look like this thing is ending anytime soon. But obviously my father is, he has the usual stern, non-negotiable kind of tone. And he basically takes my doll and say, you have plenty of dolls. Uh, we need to give this doll to that child over there. And he indicates a child that I remember perfectly. And he says, well, the child just lost her father. So we need to make her smile or something like that. And essentially, I just, you know, I feel something is clearly beyond my comprehension there. And then just, I just give this doll and I, I stay there almost crying because my, you know, my father got my doll. I want to give it back. I must have been six, seven, eight. I'm not quite sure. And then eventually I learn hearing, overhearing my father talks that there is a feud that someone chopped someone's head off and they are playing with this head as if it was some sort of soccer ball. I don't see it, thank God, I would say. But that's something that remained in me. And I didn't remember this story for decades until, it must have been 2013, I was in a conference, I think, and I was reading the news and they said, oh, someone has been arrested. This person uh, was a participant in this multiple murder that happened in 1995, I think it was, 1994, in Taurianova. And they described the scene of the head, chopped head. And then there was some sort of like spark in my brain. It's like, oh my God, I remember this. Similarly to these killings, the kidnappings themselves had a level of brutality that I don't think you initially realise. And the Undrangheta kidnappers used Aspromonte to its fullest extent to hold people as long as was needed. You're taken while you're entering the car with your mother, or just saying goodbye to your son or husband, or as you've just woken up on a Sunday after partying with your friends, and you are having breakfast, or while you're getting back home after work. In a split second, you are pushed inside the car, the smell of men around you, the hands of one of them on your mouth, and then blackout. Up to an 18-hour drive, maybe hidden in the trunk if you are kidnapped somewhere in the north, or just a 15 to 30 minutes drive. It's all it takes, if you're already in Calabria. The car speeds through the narrow cobblestone roads to reach Aspromonte as soon as possible. In any case, at some point, the monster mountain swallows you. Then, the car, your freedom, crashed in an instant. You're drowsy, and they don't show their faces. You're not sure what you see. They all wear the same clothes and face masks. You are blindfolded now. Their voices are muffled by the vegetation that gets thicker around you. They make you hide for hours that feel like days. They give you cheese and some bread. 
they barely speak. You hide, and you have no idea where you are. You feel the wind through the trees and the foliage. Hear some birds chirping, or not. No. They are helicopters, buzzing over you, far away. You feel like you want to scream, but your throat fails you. The monster mountain stole your voice, and you feel you are moving very slowly, almost not moving at all. Then, maybe when you are almost passing out, in and out of sleep, a guy who looks like is in charge, shakes you. We got to move. It is colder now. Probably the sun went down. If it's dark, then we can move. He says, you move now, quickly. They push you, rush you. It is dark and you can now go unseen. Go where they will keep you for the night or for several nights. If you are one of the lucky ones, you will go into a cave, no more than a meter and a half high. You cannot properly stand, unless you are a child. If you are less lucky, they will push you down into a, a hole in the ground, smelling the grass, to get to a basement or underground, surrounded only by soil and wood, no light. No sun, no contact with the outside. You'll stay there, in the cave or the hole, as long as it is a safe hiding place. Could be weeks or months. If they move you, you won't know why. Are you finally getting freed? Or are they just moving you somewhere else? What day is it? You can try and guess, as they left you a calendar, and they bring you magazines, at times newspapers. If the news is not about you, your family, the ransom money, and negotiation. You are an object of negotiation. You. You cry until you stop feeling things. And then you probably start giving names to your kidnappers. The journalist who brings you the newspaper. The tall one, as he cannot enter the cave, basement, hole. The bird, as when he speaks it sounds like he tweets. They are not always nasty with you. Sure. You're chained, literally, more often than not. You cannot move, and you cannot ask about your family or what is going to happen to you. But they don't usually hit you. They feed you. They give you a hot meal every day, generally at lunch, soup or pasta. Then for dinner, cold cuts and cheese, as we are used to doing around here. 
You can wash yourself once a week. That'll bring you water and soap. But you might not feel like washing your hair if it's long. It is cold down there. It won't dry and you'll catch a cold. It's better not. The days go by and season change. They give you an extra blanket. You sleep when it gets dark. If you can see the outside and wake up at dawn or just wake up in the middle of the night and wait for dawn. The days go by and you confuse silence with peace. Your freedom after 10, 100, 200 or 300 days comes always too late. They'll bring you somewhere and leave you on your own to reach someone or something. You can't even run. Maybe they leave you in a barrack to be found by the carabinieri. If they're looking for you, you hope they find you in time. You haven't washed your hair or beard for weeks. You look scruffy. Your eyes are not adjusting well to the sunlight. Your muscles are not used to walking anymore. You say your name when the carabinieri ask. Does it mean anything to them? Do they know who you are? How long have they been looking for you? At home, flowers and pastries. The whole village is celebrating your return. How much were you worth, eventually? The story comes also from my father's reports and memories, quite a lot of it, actually. As I said earlier, Anna's father, who is a central figure in her own book, Chasing the Mafia, was a journalist who reported on the kidnappings and even wrote a book about it called La Santa Valenta, The Violent Saint. It was unbelievable to me to read about the conditions of these kidnappings, the inhumanity of it, the lack of compassion and the lack of, I don't know, decency. We are talking here about people who were kidnapped for over sometimes over two years, and in caves where you couldn't even stand, where you were basically taken in the middle of your day and uh, brought somewhere you wouldn't recognize because sometimes if you were lucky enough, you wouldn't see the light of day for days. And even if they fed you and they kind of gave you sometimes some treats, maybe a newspaper to read or a magazine or whatever, the conditions were extremely, extremely poor. As I said, it sometimes caves were you couldn't even stand up. You wouldn't wash your hair for months. Sometimes you were chained. Uh, some of the kidnapped victims reported that they had to fight against mice and uh, insect bites all the time. Even when they weren't constantly hungry, they obviously didn't have any choice of whatever they were eating or drinking uh, or even any company of that sort because clearly the kidnapped didn't just stay there for them to talk to. So it was completely alienating and uh, inhumane and something that 
was a, nothing short than a traumatic experience for life, which is how you would describe it. And as I said, I was absolutely uh, brought to tears in reading uh, these passages and uh, hearing from some of the victims themselves in the reportage of those times. Uh, I think everyone should remember this, even when we try to forget this, because this is how the Ndrangheta created their reputation. This is what their reputation is about. The kind of violence and the kind of disdain for life that they have comes from those periods. And that is something that explains so much of where we are at today. Some of the stories are heartbreaking, like seven-year-old Marco Fiora, who was snatched in Turin and then driven to Aspromonte, where he was chained up for a year and a half. Marco's kidnappers repeatedly told him that the reason his parents hadn't paid the ransom was because they didn't love him, when actually it was because they weren't as rich as the Undrangheta kidnappers thought. Marco was eventually released, and there are news clips of him, and he's so incredibly thin and can barely walk because the muscles in his legs had effectively wasted away from lack of use. The longest kidnapping was Carlo Celadon, the son of a wealthy businessman who, in 1988, at the age of 19, was taken from his home in the north of Italy, bound and dumped in the boot of a car. He wouldn't return home for 828 days. And then there was the infamous kidnapping of John Paul Getty, the 16-year-old son of billionaire Jean Paul Getty. The Ndrangheta demanded a huge ransom, which his father refused to pay. And so first, John Paul Getty's ear was sent to a newspaper. It had the desired effect and the family paid up and he was released. But such had been the trauma suffered by John Paul Getty, the physical and psychological damage, that he fell into a drug and alcohol addiction which eventually caused a massive stroke, resulting in blindness and paralysis. And remember what Anna said right at the beginning, the thing that binds all these cases together is Aspromonte. They were all brought to Aspromonte. Unfortunately, still today, it's very easy to get lost, very easy to somehow hide. Uh, but even more so, the fact that made this, this season of the kidnappings particularly different from anything else that was happening in those years is a, the numbers. So we're talking about at least 200 kidnappings in the space of 12 years, more or less, attributed to the Ndrangheta clans. A very few Ndrangheta clans, not all of them, and definitely not everyone in the Ndrangheta was involved at the same point. But more importantly, last most important point, the villages were all unfortunately involved. So if the kidnapping was carried out by a clan which was from the village of Natile or Luca or Plati, it means that the whole village had to be somehow made proxy to it. Not because they were hiding people, because as I said, people were hidden in caves or in natural you know, hiding places in the mountain, but because the kidnappings require feeding the kidnapped. It requires providing blankets, providing transports, making sure that if they get sick, they do receive some sort of paracetamol or whatever. So the whole thing became a matter of getting your family business involved. And uh, this is very, very difficult to accept, comprehend, more importantly, and not condemn 
to the point of assuming that everyone was involved and everyone had the intent to kidnap. So it's a very shameful page in certain parts of Calabria. These kidnappings were still happening around Aspromonte when Anna was a child. She spent summer months at her grandmother's Nonna Mima, who lived in Santa Cristina de Aspromonte. So how much was she aware of the dark practice that was going on around her. The weirdest thing I remember is listening to the news. It was those years where we would sit together for dinner with my grandparents. My parents weren't there. And every night there is this, this tradition, I guess, in Italian houses to watch the uh, news, TV news, uh, while you're eating. And every once in a while you saw images in the national TV from the area, from the Aspromonte area. And you looked at it as if there was some sort of disconnection. It's like, why are they talking about us what happened today and you learn it from the news and not from what was happening around you which was extremely strange I remember and then I remember asking my grandparents they didn't want to talk about no one talked about it so there was this sort of like let's let's pretend for the love of God let's pretend nothing is happening otherwise it's it's probably too big to face so you you did know you did hear the helicopters you did see the carabinieri but Something about it just didn't register in the right way. It's just so strange thinking back. And it's actually one of my first questions in research. It's like, how did I not know this? How did I not see it? And I was young. Obviously, I was very small, actually, for the first uh, kidnapping. I was barely four or five. But then for the other ones, I was a bit older. So it, it's just very strange. Yes. According to Anna's father, one of the kidnapped once knocked on her grandmother's door. She sent him to the police, but she knew who he was. It was moments like this where reality was harder to ignore. But as Anna says in the book, the village protects as much as it entraps. And then she asks the important question, how else would you survive your daily life if not by crafting a mix between denial of what might hurt you and a renewed trust in what you feel you know? And that is how things like Omerta work that famous code of silence, it's much more nuanced. Sometimes it's about doing the best you can, a form of self-preservation. Where it strays into something different is when a person remains silent because they are actively trying to protect criminal activities. The kidnapping season began to wind up in 1991, the year the Cacciatori, or the Hunters, were created. A special squad of highly trained and heavily armed carabinieri who go by the motto, surveillance from the sky, coercion from the ground. Each summer, at some point, you had curfew where you couldn't go in the Aspromonte because there were, you know, helicopters called the Cacciatori, the Hunters of the Aspromonte, which was a special squad of the carabinieri. They were obviously going to look for uh, the victims. There were carabinieri everywhere coming out from the mountain and into the village. And the way you have to imagine these villages is that you have one way in, usually for each of them, from the main roads uh, in the region. But then at the back of the village is the Aspromonte. So there is really the way out, let's say, on the other side of the village is the Aspromonte. And obviously, this is also a way in from people who come from the Aspromonte on foot or special means of transport that are apt to travel the mountain. So you would come. So you would see from, you know, every once in a while, the Carabinieri coming down from the Aspromonte road, but you didn't see 
them coming up. So obviously that kind of became normality and it became normality also because, but this I learned only later on, some of the kidnapped victims did escape through the Aspromonte. So all of a sudden you had this sort of like alarm place, place in the village square, whatever, saying to people to, you know, return to your houses, the Carabinieri will come around. But it wasn't that uh, often, but it did happen. It's no surprise that Aspromonte was used to conceal kidnapped victims. This was a territory that the Ndrangheta knew. It was within a community they knew. It's easy to conceal something within the caves, the crags or ravines. Then of course the tree cover. Its remoteness and ruggedness is its strength. But the hunters changed that, stationing themselves on Aspromonte and sometimes travelling by helicopter. The Ndrangheta no longer had everything their way. And although the kidnapping season is now over, the hunters are still roaming Aspromonte looking for Ndrangheta members hiding in their mountain labyrinth. So what about the money? How much money did the Ndrangheta extort out of the families of kidnapping victims? Well, firstly, such was the amount it became known as the kidnapping industry. And although we can never be certain how much was given over to the Ndrangheta clans, We do know that between 1945 and 2007, across Italy, the equivalent of 400 million euros was paid out for 694 kidnappings. More than half of that went to the Undrangheta. This money travelled the world, and travelled the world to buy cocaine or to buy out other people in the cocaine trade, including Cosa Nostra or Camorra family at the time. Uh, but also money sent to Australia, to Canada, to family members who were there, not necessarily for criminal intent, but to invest, reinvest in land, reinvest in real estate, and essentially just, you know, merry-go-round of money. So this kidnapping season was also the reason why a certain family remade their houses in the villages. How could they fix entire villas? Not, you know, to make them super posh or super wealthy looking, but just because they didn't have the money before. So in, there, there are, you know, suspicions sometimes, less suspicions of money from the kidnappings being re-channeled in the public administration funds of the villages to build a school or to fix the road. So it was really about a lot more than just getting your hands on illicit proceeds. Unfortunately, it, was, it became a lot more than that. So alongside investing in their local communities and sending money overseas, money also found its way into the drug trafficking business, an illicit market that a number of Undrangheta clans have become synonymous with. And we'll be covering that in the third and final part of this series of episodes. So why did the kidnapping stop? If the clans were making so much money through this brutal, efficient and relatively cheap practice, why stop? Well, a big reason was a new law introduced by the authorities which allowed them to freeze the bank accounts of victims' families. And we're not talking just the spouse or the parents, but also relatives or any other person who could be involved in paying a ransom, providing it had been signed off by a judge. But there is just one more kidnapping I want to talk about, and it happened a few years after the new law came into place. In December 1997... Alessandra Scurella was taken in Milan. 
So the Alessandra Sgarella, I remember the kidnapping because obviously it was on the news and at the time I was already a teenager, so I remember a lot vividly than anything else. The Sgarella kidnapping was strange because it happened years later than the others in a way. So it was an outlier. And also because the law was already in place, the law against the, with the freezing of the assets, Alessandra Sgarella was an entrepreneur from uh, the Milan area. It was uh, everything about this seemed like old stories. So she was the typical kind of victim in a way. But at the same time, it was everything about it was also strange. She was released, I guess it was eight, nine months after she was kidnapped. So another very long kidnapping. But this time, everything about this kidnapping was a lot more public. Because the Ndrangheta, by that time, was already part of the anti-mafia effort. And I say by that time, because that's, we shouldn't forget that the anti-mafia units in Italy were born in 1991, officially. So it, it took a while, obviously, for them to start working. But then, obviously, by 1997, there was a completely different approach to the to any mafia, really, and specifically to the Ndrangheta. We are already past 1992, which is our wonderful, fantastic, awful year in Italian history where everything happened in Italy. Uh, so it, the, the, it was a completely different Italy when this kidnapping happened. About this kidnapping, a lot is weird about this. And it is weird because she was released near Locri, which is not strange. Many of them were released near Locri. The idea that the, kid, the, the ransom was paid is still fairly you know, realistic. Obviously, she was from a wealthy family, so that also eases up, uh, in a way, the, the ransom that was paid. There was an inquiry and about the fact that, obviously, the Barbaro family, which was considered uh, to be the mastermind behind this, uh, many actually, not just this, of the kidnappings from Platy. Some of them were already in jail and obviously the way in which they talked from jail when they decided to talk from jail about this seemed sometimes artifacts, it's artificial. So there, there are lots of unanswered questions about this kidnapping, but I guess everyone was just glad it was over. And as always in Italy, we, we keep secrets until 20 years later something <laughs> reveals us the truth. But yeah, it's still not an easy case to discuss. Anna discusses this case in her book for obvious reasons, but it also possesses another significance, and that is a certain clan name, the one that Anna just mentioned, and that's Babaro, a name that will be the focus of our next episode. The Babaro clan are considered Undrangheta royalty, and they were involved in the Scarella kidnapping, but it was also reportedly the boss of the Babaro clan in Platy, Giuseppe Babaro, who was in prison at the time, who handled the negotiations. So I think the connection we can make here, which is also the my mind connection in the book as well, is that by 1997, when Alessandra Sgarella was kidnapped, we knew that the Platy clan, the clan from the village of Platy, and nearby Platy, of course, from Natile, Carreri, and all of those others, uh, were heavily involved in the kidnappings. And more, more than involved, they were the mastermind behind it. And uh, one of the families uh, that was more involved together with family clan that was more involved was surely the the Barbaro clan. Now, the Barbaro clan is a complicated family. There are at least 
five or six different Barbaro branches, uh, but the one that was involved in these kidnappings, most of them, let's say, is the main family from Plati, which is also one of the families that migrated the most. And with that also comes what for Italian prosecutors, Italian law enforcement is a given, but for the rest of the world is very difficult to accept or prove uh, that ma- a lot of the money from the kidnappings went through the Barbaros in Australia. And that is one of the reasons why I decided to focus on Australia in the first place when I started looking into this. Because obviously I thought at that time there must be someone who saw something at some point in, uh, in terms of this money moving. And it's Australia we head to in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'd like to thank Anna Sergi for taking the time to speak to me about her new book. Anna's book, Chasing the Mafia, Ndrangheta, Memories and Journeys, is available now. Please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. And remember to go and check out our website, globalinitiative.net, where you can find all of our latest research into organised crime. Finally, we have a new series from the GI called The Ripple Effect, which looks at assassinations around the world and the impact they have on society. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back soon with another episode.